0: Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this of course is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And before we begin, last week I recorded an unscripted episode in which I share my thoughts on the 2020 presidential election, the results, the candidates, etc., and there's also some personal anecdotes sprinkled in there as well. Initially, I was thinking of making a YouTube version by adding still images to the audio like I usually do, but I was short on time and it's a fairly lengthy episode, over an hour long, I believe. So as you can imagine, the editing would have been pretty time-consuming. You can always track down the audio version by going to Podbean or iTunes, etc., if you're interested. And if you do seek that episode out, be forewarned. I was listening back to it for quality control purposes, and I couldn't believe how often I use the filler phrase, you know what I mean. Brutal. If you turned it into a drinking game, you'd have alcohol poisoning by the end of the hour. Here's a brief recap. You know what I mean? 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 And some of this stuff, it's like, whoa. Did I just do a Joey Lawrence? Whoa, 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 you know what I mean? Uncle Joe's a little too touchy or he kinda gives me the creeps or whatever, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Someone please save me. You know what I mean? What's going on? You know what I mean? COVID, you know what I mean? It's like, how do you know? You know what I mean? Wow, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Fancy experimental drugs. You know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? 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 I don't know. And that's not setting the bar that high, you know what I mean? I have trouble, I have trouble, you know what I mean? Obscene amounts of money, you know what I mean? I think it's kind of a political Rorschach test, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? mean? And I can uh, assure you this, from here to the grave, I will never take or allow someone else to take an image of my butthole. And sadly, other than the overlaid vocals with the effects on them, none of those you-know-what-I-means were repeats. That's an actual representation of how many times I said you-know-what-I-mean in the last episode. Now, the weird thing is, I knew I was guilty of certain filler words or phrases like, well, like, that's one, and also, I say whatever a lot. But I didn't even know I had a you-know-what-I-mean problem. Ah, uh, the perils of being a podcaster. When it comes to those long unscripted episodes, I think I need to be more patient and listen back to them an extra time or two before publishing them. At the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, I think I made some good points or observations in that episode, but as a whole, I thought it came off as a bit tedious or messy. Both formats have their pros and cons. Unscripted episodes feel more genuine and sincere, and there can be these funny little unplanned moments, etc., but the downside is the ums and ahs, overuse of certain filler words or phrases, struggling to find the right words or awkwardly repeating yourself, that kind of thing. And then scripted content sounds more polished, streamlined, and professional, but the downside is you sacrifice some of that feeling of human warmth, spontaneity, and authenticity, but I think it would probably help a lot if I just, as suggested, sat on those unscripted episodes a bit longer and edited them more thoroughly before publishing. And while we're on the subject of content, I've been putting out so much unscripted content lately that as a change of pace, I wanted to do a little scripted episode, and the topic I wanted to cover was the so-called Euthyphro Dilemma. I remember a long time ago, I released a couple of episodes that focused on specific examples of the kind of philosophical jargon and arguments often heard or employed during atheist versus theist debates, so I wanted to do something like that. I kind of returned to good old nerdy atheist content. I also thought it might be a good break from all the politics, etc. And so I figured, hey, I'll knock out a nice tidy little scripted episode on the Euthyphro Dilemma. And man am I saying Euthyphro Dilemma a lot. Hopefully I don't have to release a Euthyphro Mix next week. But once I realized how much research would be required, because although the Euthyphro Dilemma proceed with caution, starts in ancient Greece with the dialogues of Plato. It's a concept or question that Western philosophers and theologians have been wrestling with throughout the centuries, so it would have involved covering a lot of historical and philosophical ground. So I was like, Euthyphro can wait. This ain't the kind of thing I can easily knock out in one weekend. But I thought it might be fun to at least quickly go over the basic concept. So as I was saying, it goes back to one of Plato's dialogues, specifically a dialogue simply referred to, appropriately enough, as Euthyphro. In it, Plato has Socrates asking the character Euthyphro the following question. Is the pious love by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is love by the gods? Or I guess to paraphrase, do the gods consider certain things to be good because they innately or truly are good, or are they simply considered good because they're what the gods want or prefer? Although in its original context the question or dilemma refers to the pagan Greek pantheon, later Western thinkers would apply it to monotheism. For instance, the German philosopher Leibniz asked whether the good and just is good and just because God wills it, or whether God wills it because it is good and just. I've heard the euthyphro dilemma invoked in a lot of atheist versus theist debates and thought it would have made for an interesting deep dive or show topic, but as I was saying, it would require a lot more research than I have the time for right now, so one for another day, I suppose. And believe it or not, I have actually been trying, trying the key word, to avoid politics. But at the moment, it's hard to find crazy religious news stories that don't involve Trump somehow. And as a skeptic, this one is pure gold because it features a seemingly endless slew of failed predictions by religious wingnuts and charlatans. And no offense to decent religious folk out there who also recognize the absurdity of people like Kenneth Copeland and Paula White. I'm not sure if Paula White is actually in this montage. She probably is somewhere. Uh, It's about 24 minutes long, but I'm only going to play the first couple of minutes. That's all you really need to understand how ludicrous and grossly mistaken these people are.
1: First of all, I want to say without question, Trump is going to win the election. President Trump is going to win. And he says he's going to be in office for two terms. The rebirth of this nation. I pray your prophecy comes true. That's what we need. It's coming to pass.
0: And watch the reelection of Donald Trump. There's no doubt whatsoever. He will win because that's God's plan.
1: Donald Trump will win a second term. What I intend to do through him, it will take two terms to do.
0: This is what he said. And I knew that Trump was going to be president.
2: The army of God will have victory after victory after victory. And I love what President Trump always says. He says, you're going to get sick and tired of winning if there is such a thing. And that's going to be the same way for the army of God. It's going to be victory after victory after victory.
0: Will it be an eight year presidency?
2: Absolutely. 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 Absolutely We will.
0: Uh, you're sure about that?
2: Yeah, I'm sure about that. Because I think what's going to happen is is that when people see the good that the country's Coming into right now, the prosperity, the jobs, the economy, whatever the case may be, there's gonna be no doubt he's gonna sail right in for the first second term. Wendy Griffith,
0: CBN News. Do like I did. Get this book of Stevens. I got it when it was in the manuscript and studied it. I studied it and worked with it and, and studied it.
3: And what's gonna happen this election, Donald Trump, I don't, I know is going to win Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, all everywhere, Um, you know, Ohio, Florida, even Nevada. I mean, these, these polls are false. And everyone, everywhere you go on the ground, people, you don't see Biden signs out there. You see, I'll just take the black demographic, the African-American, their vote was like six to 8%, I think in 16 He's going to get 20 to 25% of that vote. He's done more for African-Americans than anybody in history. So these are the things I'm seeing. It's going to be the greatest um, red wave you've ever seen.
0: Boy, that's exciting. Exciting indeed. I think that last guy, not the that's exciting guy, but the guy he was uh, responding to, is actually Mike Lindell. He's the founder of MyPillow. And he has a really wacky history. He was addicted to crack cocaine. He got a degree from Liberty University. And now he's uh, you know, a very right-wing kind of uh, evangelical guy. He's also buddies with Trump. And you may recall he was in the news not that long ago promoting an unproven coronavirus cure, quote-unquote cure. And here's a little uh, a Wikipedia stub or entry about it. In White House meetings with Trump in public appearances, Lindell has promoted a plant extract, it looks like oleandrin, I think, O-L-E-A-N-D-R-I-N, as a quote-unquote cure for COVID-19, saying, in quotes, this thing works, it's the miracle of all time. In a television appearance, Lindell made a misleading statement about the testing of the substance. Lindell has a financial stake in Phoenix Biotechnology, a company that makes oleandrin, or whatever the hell it is, and sits on its board. Lindell's unsubstantiated claims alarm scientists. Since there's no scientific evidence that oleandrin is a safe or effective coronavirus treatment, it says that the plant is actually poisonous at low doses. After the efforts by Lindell and HUD Secretary Ben Carson to promote Oleandrin, Trump said his administration would, quote-unquote, look at the substance. And I'm laughing just because of the absurdity of these two guys working together, uh, Mike Lindell and Ben Carson. Ben Carson's another character who's just way out there. Uh, Actually, to be fair, a very gifted and prominent, neurosurgeon. And yet, at the same time, this very kind of fundamentalist Christian with a whole host of odd beliefs, like his belief that the biblical character Joseph built the ancient Egyptian pyramids to use as grain silos, I imagine it probably has something to do with him trying to harmonize a literal belief in the Bible with the actual history of ancient Egypt. I believe he's a creationist. Uh, Whether or not he's a young earth creationist? I'm not sure. And it's funny, I actually remember when Mike Lindell went on Anderson Cooper's show, maybe several months ago, and promoted this spurious, this fake COVID-19 cure. And I thought Anderson Cooper did a great job of holding his feet to the fire, but it was also a bit maddening to watch, because when Anderson Cooper would call him out on his outrageous claims, Lindell would just dig his heels in deeper. But I have another crazy preacher clip I want to play. It's in the same vein as that montage. It's Kenneth Copeland again, and this time he's trying to laugh away the fact that the Associated Press called the election for Biden. So not only does he look like a Batman villain, but he laughs maniacally like one as well. Well, ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Ha, ha 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 The Associated Press
3: said that Joe Biden is president. Ha 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 yeah Who <laughs> Who, yeah. Uh-huh? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to be president, Mickey
0: Mouse is going to be king. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah) I don't even know what to say about that. It's just so demented. But on to the next thing. And so it's been a while since I've mentioned Sam Harris on the show, but there's a clip from the most recent episode of his podcast that's been getting a lot of attention. In it, he basically renounces his affiliation with the so-called IDW, or intellectual dark web. It's a collection of semi-well-known thinkers, many who themselves claim to be leftists to some degree, but who denounce political correctness and cancel culture, etc. I've always found the term intellectual dark web to be cringy as hell. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's because it seems kind of pretentious, or like an attempt to try to make a bunch of middle-aged men seem cool or edgy. Whatever the reason, it's always rubbed me the wrong way. One thing that separated Sam from other members of the intellectual dark web is his outspoken disdain for Trump. In fairness, I think Brett Weinstein has also openly criticized Trump, but he probably hasn't denounced him as strongly as Sam. And based on what Sam says in this clip I'm about to play, it sounds like some of his fellow IDW members may have been entertaining the ludicrous notion that Biden stole the election from Trump. And that's finally what pushed him to publicly sever ties with the intellectual dark web. And I go into this in that long-winded unscripted episode I mentioned earlier. But there's a reason why this election was different than past presidential elections. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and understandably a large percentage of the population chose to vote by mail this time around. And so to me at least, it's not a big mystery why Biden suddenly seemed to be performing better in the polls. Trump was looking good early on, on election night, but lost his lead as the mail-in ballots continued pouring in. And I believe which votes were counted first or took priority depended on the state. Some states, for instance, like New Jersey, started counting absentee ballots early on as they came in during the lead-up to the election. Well, some battleground states, like Pennsylvania, didn't partake in that kind of head start. In some states and or counties, including some Pennsylvanian counties, I believe, counted in-person votes first and then moved on to the mail-in ballots. And so, as I mentioned in that last episode, for whatever reason, well, probably because a lot of them are rational, sycophantic, science deniers who either don't believe COVID exists, or if they do, they seriously downplay or ignore the danger it poses, but Trump supporters tended to opt for in-person voting, while people like myself, who actually believe in the germ theory of disease and realize we're in the middle of a pandemic, opted for mail-in voting. And I'll probably make a YouTube version of this episode, and if I see anything in the comments section about the nutso theory being pushed by Sidney Powell, one of Trump's lawyers, that spooky software flips 7 million votes for Joe Biden, I'll pull my hair out. Well, actually, I think as of today, I'm recording this on the 24th, it looks like they're trying to give her the soft boot, you know, trying to push her out or disassociate themselves from her. But here I am talking politics again. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. But here's Sam. Oh yeah, and the clip that's been going around is maybe only a minute or two long. I downloaded the full episode and then clipped out a longer version. My version's probably about three minutes or so.
3: Trump is as much a symptom as a cause of the division in our society now. I mean, he is not Stalin. He is not Hitler. He is a vindictive little con man who got plucked out of a carnival somewhere by Mark Burnett and put on television for over a decade. Trump is the quintessential American fake. And it's been astounding to watch such a bizarre and insubstantial person accomplish one crazy stage dive after the next because there were millions of upraised hands waiting to catch him, and to bear his weight. So there are real social problems at the bottom of all this that we have to address, and we won't address any of them by writing off everyone who voted for Trump as racist or otherwise irredeemable. But there are many people in my circle, friends and colleagues and podcast guests, who are making the opposite error Many of them are almost exclusively focused on the problem of the far left. And this is causing them to significantly discount the harm that Trump has caused and is actively causing to our society. Some of these people are Trump supporters, but many aren't. And they've been taking the Trump team's allegations that the election was stolen through massive voter fraud way too seriously. And they're extending a principle of charity to Trump and to the rest of his team That is frankly delusional. Again, there is a needle to thread here, and many people don't appear to even see it. Insofar as I've noticed what others in the so-called intellectual dark web have been saying, it's generally not something I want to be associated with. I don't want to single anyone out in particular, but allow me to take this moment to turn in my imaginary membership card to this imaginary organization. I mean, the IDW was always tongue-in-cheek, from my point of view. It was a funny name for a group of people who were willing to discuss difficult topics in public, mostly on podcasts, but it never made sense for us to be grouped together as though we shared a common worldview. I never saw much downside to it, and I didn't much think about it. But in the aftermath of this election, with some members of this fictional group sounding fairly bonkers, I just want to make it clear that I'm not part of any group Right? So if you want to criticize my ideas, that's great, but I only represent myself here, and no one else speaks for me. We have a crisis of legitimacy now on all fronts. People have lost their trust in our institutions, and this is understandable given all that's happened over the last four years. Trust in media has almost collapsed, but that doesn't mean there still isn't a difference between the New York Times and Breitbart or between journalists who are doing their best to report facts, even while they harbor their own political biases, and political operatives or conspiracy theorists who are obviously spreading lies. So as bad as things are in mainstream media, and don't get me wrong, they're quite bad, you simply can't place equal blame on both sides, politically, at this moment.
0: And so, as an old school Sam Harris fan, and as someone who likes Sam, isn't exactly crazy about Trump, to put it mildly, I found that very heartening. I also found myself wondering, out of curiosity, who Sam's core demographic is or are. The overly politically correct types probably don't like him due to his take on things like Islam and so called cancel culture. On the other hand, right leaning types might not like him due to his strong criticism of Trump. now I'm sure he'll lose some listeners or supporters after disavowing the intellectual dark web, but he seems to be doing okay. A lot better than me and my little podcast here. And don't worry, that's self-awareness, not self-pity. But I listened to that entire episode of Making Sense with Sam Harris, and I thought it was pretty damn good. Whenever I hear Sam's take on Trump, I'm like, good, it's not just me. There's someone else whose opinion I respect who finds him just as ludicrous as I do let's move on from one horseman to another. Remember the good old Four Horsemen days, Harris, Dennett, Dawkins, and Hitchens? And so the next clip I'm gonna play involves Dawkins specifically. He sat down for an interview with a young content creator I've mentioned on the show before, a YouTuber slash podcaster who goes by the name Cosmic Skeptic. The clip I'm about to play is an excerpt he published from the full-length interview. It's entitled Richard Dawkins on Veganism and Animal Rights. To be honest, I found the title to be a little bit misleading. Probably not intentionally. Cosmic Skeptic seems like a really good dude. He strikes me as a very principled sort of person. And maybe if you see the clip in the context of the full interview, they do touch on veganism at some point. I'm not sure. And I may be nitpicking a bit because they do, in a kind of broad sense, touch on or discuss the treatment of animals or how we should morally view or approach our relationship with them, but veganism specifically doesn't come up. I think the clip is about four minutes long. I was considering chiming in here and there, but it's short enough that I might just play it in its entirety and comment afterwards.
2: Do you see the seeds of moral progress happening now? Can you see where uh, in the sense that you talk about how 100 years ago things were vastly different to how they are now, what are the what are things that you think might change 100 years from now?
1: Well, that's a very nice question. Um, I I mean, my my feeling is probably um, a widening of what Peter Singer calls the expanding circle.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, So if we go back a few centuries, uh, people of different races were regarded as inferior, not even human, mm-hmm. um, and were treated accordingly, appallingly. Um, and so I suppose the obvious extrapolation of that is the widening of the of the expanding circle to non-human yes. species.
2: Now, Singer talks about um, how you can make an evolutionary case about why it makes sense to care about fellow creatures when a lot of people would intuitively say that um, if evolution serves the self, which, of course, it serves the gene, but people see it as serving the self. How can there be altruistic behavior? And he offers an explanation to say that, you know, when you help your fellow creature, um, you're helping those who share your genes. It makes evolutionary sense to develop a care for your fellow uh, your fellow creature. Do you feel the same logic would extend to no, non-human animals? I mean,
1: I, I, I don't think that logic works, even for, for as far as Peter Singer takes it.
2: I see. So, um, so how would that circle expand to non-human oh, animals? Oh, b- uh, by,
1: by, by, non, by non-genetic means. Right. I think that, um, the, that that he is actually he's actually right to to want to expand the circle morally, but I think he's wrong to think that um, it really is the same process of evolution um, that the expanding circle really does represent something evolutionary. It doesn't. Mm. Um, the, as far as evolution is concerned, kin groups, kin and potential reciprocators are as far as it goes. The expansion is done by what I would call a mistake, a, a very blessed mistake, a very very good mistake. Uh, but when we are altruistic towards non-relatives whom we're never ever going to meet again, yes, that is a um, a byproduct, mm. a, a mistaken but a, I hasten to stress again a very good
2: um, yeah. mistake. Yes, um, uh, but, but I mean you can see why. Uh, I think, as, as Singer points out in the expanding circle, uh, the way that human beings were living at the time that these these characteristics evolved, it made sense to treat any human being you yeah, meet yeah. as though they were relative, because they likely were. But the same can't be said for non-human animals.
1: Nor, nor can it be said for um, non-related humans. I mean, we've we've already we've already expanded that far.
2: Yeah, and that was not a that was a purely cultural process. And so that was a purely cultural process, over, yeah.
1: and so expanding it to to, to non-humans. It's, it's nothing to do with with chimpanzees being more closely related to us than than um, kangaroos. I see. Yeah. Um, the question is, um, as as Jeremy Bentham said, can they suffer? Yes.
2: And I mean, what do you think it will take? I'm interested because when you talk about moral progress, you give the example of the founding fathers in America having owned slaves. I mean, the, the pinnacles of, of liberty in, in liberal theory are also anathema to it in the fact that they they abused that in the most cynical way possible. Um, and you say, uh, when talking of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington particularly, you say we can at least hope that they didn't know the conditions on the slave ships coming from Africa, implying that because we think so morally highly of people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and things, they're so rational that if they'd have known how what the conditions were really like, then they would have then they perhaps would have changed their, their point. But like. In today's society, we do know the conditions of the of the equivalent. We do know the conditions uh, of, of animals in factory farms, and that doesn't seem to be doing it. I mean, what do you no. think it will
1: take? That's no, a good point. Um, I mean, in the case of Jefferson and Washington, um, I, I don't know much about it, but I presume that although they had slaves, they were probably quite kind to them, whereas the, the treatment of slaves on the ships was utterly, utterly ghastly, I mean, appalling. And I, I very much hope they didn't know, um, but you make the point about you know we when we we see lorries transporting sheep or cows, in, in just, they, you know, they remind me of you know yes. railway trucks going to going to Belson, um, and um, I, I think there is a tendency to turn a blind eye, hmm. uh, and there probably was in the eighteenth century towards towards the way slaves were treated, and there the is now towards them as you say, factory farms and slaughterhouses. Yes.
0: And so it's funny, when I was watching that clip for the first time, I basically had the same automatic reaction as Richard Dawkins. I really like Peter Singer, but to be honest, I've never read any of his works. And when I heard Cosmic Skeptic put forth what I guess is Singer's argument that people should want to treat animals better because we share a common genetic lineage, and if they succeed genetically it keeps our shared genetic legacy going forward with them, or something like that, in fairness maybe I'm interpreting or paraphrasing it poorly, but I find this to be a really kind of cold and clunky and unconvincing argument. I mean, I think there may be a scrap of merit there, but I would word it differently. I would say it's good for people to keep in mind that all life on earth is related and that we share a kinship with our fellow animals, and we should seek to treat them with compassion and respect. But I agree with Dawkins. I think beyond the fact that we're members of a social species with a seemingly evolved capacity for empathy and altruism, we don't really need a kind of cold appeal to genetics to inspire us to be compassionate towards non-human animals. And once again, I don't know what Singer's original argument was in his own words, but I do like this idea of the expanding circle, and I think this is a basic idea that's been around for a while. We can take that evolved capacity for things like empathy, compassion, and altruism that was probably once reserved for the in-group dynamic and apply or extend it not only to fellow human beings in the quote-unquote out-group, but to non human animals as well. And I don't think it's something that requires much work or effort, or at least it shouldn't. I think most of us, generally speaking, have this kind of almost natural affection and fascination for animals. And I know I've been kind of criticizing Cosmic Skeptic's argument, or rather, to be fair, Singer's argument via Cosmic Skeptic, But I'll walk it back a little and say that I do think there's merit in keeping our shared genetic lineage in mind. Our big brains and our opposable thumbs have allowed us to build civilizations, achieve astonishing technological breakthroughs that at one point would have seemed like impossible science fiction, But at the end of the day, we still possess the same basic physiological equipment as our fellow creatures that we share an evolutionary history with, especially our fellow vertebrates, and even though we shouldn't dismiss the suffering of non-mammalian animals, Birds are put through hell on factory farms too, but we have that much more in common with our fellow mammals. A dog or a cat or a pig or a cow, and as I just alluded, you know, even a chicken for that matter, might not be able to file taxes or write a sonnet or contemplate the mysteries of the universe, but they have a nervous system, they're aware, they have a will to live in aversion to pain, like us they're capable of joy and fear and suffering, and we should be be able to all agree that the less other creatures are made to suffer, the better place this world will be. And I hope that the circle does keep expanding, and that someday the atrocity we call factory farming, along with other forms of monstrous barbarism we visit upon our fellow creatures, will be nothing more than a dark chapter in our collective past. And I recently watched a video by a YouTuber by the name of Earthling Ed, And it was about animals that escaped slaughter. And there was this story about cows that escaped a slaughterhouse and took refuge. And there's a kind of sad irony here. In the parking lot of a church that was named after St. Francis of Assisi, the patron saint of animals. And whenever I hear a story like that, I'm like, come on, show at least a drop of mercy. They made it out, send them to a sanctuary or something. But no, dragged back to the slaughterhouse. And I don't know if it was the same story or a different one, but there were cows that escaped that the cops and the workers had trouble rounding up, and the cops ended up shooting the cows to death. I think they said with shotguns. And supposedly the workers were really shaken up. And it reminds me of a story I heard maybe a few months back. COVID hit the meat industry pretty hard, and there was a story about this pig farmer. I think he ran what could be considered a factory farm, so probably a lot of animals packed together living in squalor and misery until it's finally their time to be forced down the processing line. And for some reason, because the company had been negatively impacted by COVID, they had to put a large number of animals down, and the farmer was weeping, crying for the animals that had to be put down. And so it's funny how in both of those cases, the cows being shot by the cops and the pigs who had to be put down, the workers or the owner in that case demonstrated that they realized that these are living beings whose lives have value and they were emotionally moved by the plight of these poor animals being put down. And I can get how they probably view it. They don't like the idea of innocent animals being hurt or killed unnecessarily. Hey, simpatico, that's that's to be applauded. But they probably view their work, the quote-unquote processing of those animals for food, as necessary. But, you know, that out-of-context death and suffering kind of shakes them out of their complacency. I know I should probably regard it as somewhat hypocritical, which in a sense it certainly is, but I nevertheless find their reaction strangely comforting in a way, because at least it shows on some level that they do have hearts, and they are capable of caring deeply for animals. But of course, you know, this is cold comfort for all the animals that suffer and die in the places where these people work. But it's interesting they, Cosmic Skeptic and Dawkins, draw that comparison with slavery if the Founding Fathers only knew of the suffering on the slave ships. And to be honest, I'm not sure if they did or didn't. And Cosmic Skeptic mentions or points out how we do know, you know, the kind of hell animals are put through on these so-called factory farms, or I should say in, because it's usually the case that the animals are kept inside in these kind of gloomy and dingy conditions but i disagree with cosmic skeptics point that most people or you know people in general know about these conditions uh, i disagree somewhat I think the average person has probably heard passing mentions of what may be happening to animals in those places, but I don't think the average person has necessarily seen with their own eyes the gruesome footage. I think it's hard to see that kind of thing and not be affected and feel compelled to make some personal changes. And I think that's why some people kind of avoid that kind of footage, because they know they'll be deeply disturbed by it. My guess is seeing that kind of thing is a big part of what convinces some people to go vegan or at least make an effort to reduce their consumption of animal products. And that's why, at least in part, there's those so-called ag-gag laws. The big meat, egg, and dairy companies don't want people seeing that stuff, you know. Uh, What's the saying? If abattoirs had glass walls, everyone would be a vegetarian or something like that? Actually, I think it was Paul McCartney, and uh, I think it's if slaughterhouses had glass walls, something like that, close enough. And I can say for myself that seeing that kind of footage was definitely the main impetus for my own decision to try to phase out animal products. But I really respect the fact that Cosmic Skeptic has been so vocal about animal rights and his own transition to veganism, because it's a really divisive topic. Most people eat meat, and understandably, they don't want to be guilted for it or made to feel like they're being lectured to. So I imagine whenever a big content creator makes a change like that, there's the risk that they're going to shed viewers. But I imagine, given the size of his channel, that even if he does lose a certain percentage of his audience, he's still going to be alright. But, you know, hats off to him. I really uh, respect that. And while we're on the subject, this next story is very serious. It has to do with animal rights, and it involves an endangered species. It appears that Baby Yoda, a.k.a. The Child, has single-handedly been committing a frog holocaust. A frog I know I shouldn't be using uh, the word holocaust jokingly, but an uh, inappropriate sense of humor. But it didn't go unnoticed by social media. And I'm officially reporting that Baby Yoda is the latest victim of intergalactic cancel culture. First they came for the Jawas, and I said nothing. I actually watched the episode in question, uh, but I'll read a bit from this Vanity Fair article. And so it's entitled, Baby Yoda Canceled Amid Accusations of Genocide. Last week's egg-eating episode of The Mandalorian has led to a disturbance in the Force. For real. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. That also turns out to be true of the tiny. Baby Yoda, who one year ago today cozied into the hearts of Star Wars fans with his bottomless eyes, fuzzy head, and adorable cooing has invoked genuine social media wrath for last week's episode of The Mandalorian, in which the mystical infant remorselessly <laughs> snacked on the eggs of an endangered galactic species. Whether this is serious or silly depends, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would put it, on a certain point of view. And then it has an update, and it's like, I'm kind of laughing because... This whole story is so silly, but someone felt, you know, was taking it seriously enough that it needed uh, an update. In the latest episode, which dropped Friday morning, Baby Yoda himself was swallowed alive by a giant sea creature, learning a valuable lesson about what it's like to be the appetizer. It ended with him playing nice with one of Frog Lady's new polywogs. Given the redemptive turn, it appears his cancellation has itself been cancelled. So as I was saying, I watched the episode in question, The Mandalorians, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and uh, autocorrect turned TV shows to TV shoes in my notes. Not sure what TV shoes are, but anyway, despite having watched the episode, the fact that there was a moral to the story or a teachable moment went right over my head. I saw Baby Yoda sucking down eggs and didn't think much of it, because hell, in the first uh, season, he's munching on live frogs. Space frogs. And uh, can I mention one more thing about The Mandalorian? Why am I asking you? It's my podcast. Uh, I'll make it quick. So The Mandalorian usually has awesome special effects, but I was watching the most recent episode, and there's a scene where a female character... I forget her name, but she's played by Gina Carano. Uh, But she's beating up a bunch of bad guys. And while she's at it, she kind of unintentionally saves this little creature's life. The bad guys were going to eat it. But it was weird on a couple of counts. On the one hand, it looked a lot like an earth creature, specifically a weasel or a ferret. And I'm like, if the story takes place in another galaxy and you're free to dream up any kind of creature you want, why would you make it look like something here on Earth? And secondly, the special effects were terrible. It was like a shitty little puppet. The way it moved kind of reminded me of the mangled cat puppet from Reanimator. Maybe it was a last-minute inclusion, who knows? It, it probably wasn't as bad as I'm remembering it or making it out to be. Uh, but anyway, let's do one last news story. And so this one's from the Huffington Post, and it's entitled, Vatican Wants Instagram to Explain Why the Pope's Account Liked Photo of Model. The photo featured Brazilian model Natalia Garabato wearing lingerie. And I actually had... Uh, I can't resist this digression. When I was in middle school, I think it was, or maybe early high school, I had a science teacher named Mr. Garabato. And I think it was introduction to physical science or something like that. Lots of beakers and math involved, that kind of thing. And seeing as how now as an adult, I'm a skeptic with a love of science, you might imagine that I would have been naturally drawn to a science class like that but nope, as a kid, I disliked school in general, and especially anything involving math. And I remember this teacher, you know, one time he embarrassed me in front of the whole class, uh, and he kind of pointed out, you know, what a bad student I was, and maybe I'd do better if I wasn't drawing dragons on the back of my tests or whatever. So eat a dick, Mr. Garibato, if you're still alive. Ha <laughs> ha! I know I've said lately that I'm trying to swear less on the show, but couldn't resist. But back to this story about the Pope. And so it continues, The Vatican seeks an explanation from Instagram as to why Pope Francis' official account, which is managed by his social media team, quote-unquote liked the photo of a scantily clad Brazilian model. The light did not come from the Holy See as far as we know, a Vatican spokesperson told HuffPost. The issue is currently being investigated in close contact with the Instagram team, the spokesperson said. Facebook, Instagram's parent company, declined to comment. And so to be honest, to me at least, despite being a very fun or entertaining story that's garnering a lot of media coverage, this really isn't a big deal. I seriously doubt the Pope personally liked a Brazilian model's Instagram post, and even if he did... I'm a non-believer without any puritanical hang-ups about sex. What would I care? It would probably make him more relatable in my eyes. Now, I say this as someone who was raised Catholic. Whenever I hear a salacious story about a Catholic priest, you know, having sex with women or taking part in orgies, I think there actually was a story like that not too long ago, I'm like, hey, at least it wasn't a kid. Uh, My guess is that either the account was temporarily hacked or more likely a member of his social media team, maybe some young dude, uh, may have been juggling accounts and accidentally liked a racy photo while still being logged into the PayPal account or whatever, the Papal Instagram account. My guess is it was probably just something like that. I can understand if you're a devout Catholic who regards the Pope as this kind of holy and chaste figure, why you wouldn't want him liking an image of a scantily clad young woman, but for the rest of us, it's kind of like, who cares? In the grand scheme of things, given all the corruption and cover-ups in the Catholic Church, liking a hot model's Instagram post seems pretty innocent and inconsequential in comparison. But on that note, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not that active there. Uh, You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you want to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash the and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters until next time.